Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemican podcast. To get to the very roots of alchemy, to go back to the very beginning, and to split kind of Sumerian and Babylonian astronomy away from astronomy and astrology in general, we want to give Mesopotamian alchemy and astrology its own show. And this is, this is much more about astrology than alchemy, this show is. As we've discussed before, astrology intersects with alchemy many, many times all over the place. So to kind of really get to the bottom of one of these branches that we need to understand for alchemy, we're going to go back to its roots, which started in Mesopotamia. There's definitely enough interesting stuff to talk about, and we thought our astrology episode would get too long if we shoved it all into 4,000 years or more years of astrology into one show. So we're going to split that up a little bit. So again, we're building the foundation for astrology, which will tie into alchemy. But for now, we're going to go back pretty far. To back it up as far as we can, basically, when we talk about astronomy, or even about science more generally, and even influences on alchemy, we're talking about a continuing tradition that started in Mesopotamia and has a direct unbroken line to present day, basically. So if we go as far back as we can, we're talking about Sumerian. Our knowledge of Sumerian astronomy is indirect by basically through the earliest Babylonian star catalogs dating from about 1200 BCE. But many of the star names are in Sumerian, which could take astronomy back to the early Bronze Age, like 3rd millennium BC. So we're talking about a really old tradition here. Now in our introduction and the episode on Hermes, we've discussed that we here at the History of Alchemy podcast consider kind of the 4th century AD in Alexandria to be just about the beginning of what we could consider alchemy. You could argue for first century AD, but that's kind of pushing it. If we have to pick a cutoff date, we pick the fourth century. But yeah, you could you could argue that it goes back. So why are we going back another 2,000 years or so before that? Okay, so two reasons. To look at the very beginning of an observational science. And second, as we've said many times before, you can't have late antiquity and medieval alchemy without astrology. So if we diverge from alchemy pretty far on this on this podcast, I just wanted to make that clear why we're doing so. Again, we'll do a much better job of tying astrology into alchemy in a later episode, but for now, let's get a good handle on the beginnings of astrology, astronomy, and astrolatry, so that later episode has something to build on. Plus, this stuff is really interesting for a history nerd like myself. So a couple of things we should probably talk about, right? Well, we need to get some background on who were these people. And let's start with the Sumerians, Travis. Who are these people? people? That's my Jerry Seinfeld. Sumerians who developed the earliest writing system known as cuneiform uh, around 3500 to 3200 BC. The Sumerians developed a form of astronomy that had an important influence on the sophisticated astronomy of the Babylonians. Kind of mm-hmm. fed into the into each other at at, at one point. Yeah. The Sumerian city of Urudu, uh, on the coast of the Persian Gulf, was the world's first city that we know of. 
Yeah. And, and so when we talk about the beginnings of what we consider socialized human civilization at the time, we're talking about the Sumerian cities of Urudu and the Sumerian culture. They're, they're very interesting because it's, it's a language isolates. And Travis, what does that mean? Uh, that basically means that there's no related language to it. It's not an Indo-European language. It's not a uh, you know, Far East language. There's just no related language at all. So it's, yeah, it's an isolate. When we look at Sumer, which is the city where we get the name Sumerian, uh, was first settled in uh, 4,500 to 4,000 BC by a non-Semitic people, as opposed to the Akkadians who were Semitic. And over a long time, both Sumerian and Akkadian were written and spoken. The Akkadian language slowly dominated until the Sumerian language basically just disappeared. All right, so like many other, you know, sort of fights with, with uh, who's going to uh, survive with their culture, uh, one usually falls apart and the other su- succeeds. They also used sex- sexadecimal, uh, base 60, which place value number system, which is something we all actually use today even, uh, which simplified the task of recording very great and very small numbers. The modern practice of dividing a circle into 360 degrees of 60 minutes each hour began with these same very Sumerians. Yep, there you go. All right, very interesting. Astrology, yeah. uh, w- which uh, gave planetary gods uh, an important role in Mesopotamian mythology and religion, began with the Sumerians. Think of what the planets are called, names of gods, right? Um, they started with Sumerians and was taken over by the Babylonians, from there, the Greeks, and then, of course, the Romans. Yeah, I, I know we mentioned Babylonians a lot, but we're really simplifying because we could be talking about the Akkadian Empire, Gutian, Ur-3, Neo-Babylonians, even Chaldeans, Achaemenids, Seleucids, Parthians, and so on. Um, probably more accurate would be to say Mesopotamians, right? I mean, that, that's kind of a coverall term for that. But we're not going to. There are other podcasts that deal with the history of the ancient world, and they break that down, and those, those are very cool listens. But we're focused on the science part of it, and we're going to be a little bit lazy about the different cultures here. But these people brought to the Greeks more of the dynasties of Mesopotamia. So when Greco-Babylonian astrology is said, and it's not just us that is guilty of that, it's a very big oversimplification. Greco-Babylonian is a misnomer, but that's what we're going So, you know, anyway, the, the Babylonians inherited these beginnings from the Sumerians and built upon it. That's really kind of what you're saying that's, in a nutshell, That's right? the point. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when we talk about the Greeks trying to make a logical sense of the universe, this is something we can see the Babylonians doing way before them. During the 8th and 7th century BCE, Babylonian astronomers developed a new empirical approach to astronomy. We get these star charts and these predictions from this era. They, they begin studying philosophy, dealing with the ideal nature of the universe, and begin, begin employing an internal logic within their predictive planetary systems. So, you know, with this mathematics, they actually know where the stars will be in the future because it's, you know, kind of cyclical. This approach cannot be understated because it's maybe the first scientific revolution. It certainly contributed to astronomy and the philosophy of science. So, I mean, the, the fact that you could predict something in nature, that was, that was a, a, a leap of understanding in many ways. For example, uh, when you hear Chaldeans, which were a short-lived dynasty in, in Babylon, normally we think of Greek or Latin source-speaking as astronomers of Mesopotamia. Chaldeans were, re- were really specializing in, ast- in astrology and other types of divination. According to the historian um, A. Aboy, Babylonian astron- astronomy was the first and highly successful attempt 
at giving a refined mathematical description of astronomical phenomena that all subsequent varieties of scientific, scientific astronomy in the Hellenistic world, in India, in Islam, and the rest of the West, if not all in, in subsequent endeavor to the exact sciences, depend upon Babylonian astronomy in divisive and fundamental ways. So, I mean, it all kind of... that is give credit. Yeah. That is the foundation, yeah. Exactly. So to go into periodicity a little bit, um, because that, that really is an important point, the Babylonians were the first to recognize that ast- astronomical phenomena are periodic and apply mathematics to their predictions. So tablets dating back to the old Babylonian period document the application of mathematics to the variation in lengths of daylight over a solar year, right? So, you know, you, they, they notice that every year the days are kind of the same, but you know, in that yearly cycle. Centuries of Babylonian observations of celestial phenomena are recorded in the series of cuneiform tablets known as the, I'm going to butcher this, Enuma Anu Enlil. The oldest significant astronomical text that we possess is tablet 63 of that text. We could call it the Venus tablet of Amisaduka, which lists the first and last visible risings of Venus over a period of about 21 years. So it, this is basically the earliest evidence that planetary phenomena were recognized as periodic. That's pretty interesting. The Mul Apin contains catalogs of stars and constellations as well as schemes for predicting the rising of the sun and setting of the planets. And lengths of daylight is measured by, like for instance, water clocks and gnomon, shadows, you know, intercalculations, that kind of thing. So ba- the Babylonian text arranges stars in strings that lie along the declination circles. So it, it measures the right ascensions and time intervals and employs like basically the zenith of the stars. So there are dozens of cuneiform Mesopotamian texts with real observations of eclipses, mainly from Babylonia again. Right? And we'll take that on to the planetary theory from the Babylonians that were the first civilization known to possess this fun- fundamental or this functional theory of these planets, Travis. So the last stages in the development of the Babylonian astronomy took place during the time of the Seleucid Empire in 323 to 60 BC. In the 3rd century BC, astronomers began to use the goal-year texts to predict the motion of the planets. These texts compiled records of past observations to find repeating occurrences of ominous phenomena for each planet. About the same time, or shortly afterwards, astronomers created mathematical models that followed them to predict these phenomena directly without consulting past records. So now we're seeing something to be used not just for the idea of education, but to measure what could possibly go wrong. Yeah, so I, I kind of see the evolution of astrology here. So they say, okay, you had a crop failure here. You know, where was Venus when this happened? Where, what constellation was above you? And then they say, okay, so watch out, because in 21 years, when it's the same, it could happen again. So, so this is like... If you say, well, why do astrologers believe that these and these constellations is bad or this is good? Well, this all started here. So this is like the blue book that said, okay, well, we had this war and this is what the sky looked like. So therefore, when the sky looks like this again, watch out for war. And this continued continued for a long time. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Like this is kind of the beginning of the evolution. I mean, this is, you know, now you might think, well, why does it, you know, where does that come from? Well, here you go. 360 BC, somewhere in there. Now, the cosmology of of all this, and I would take this with a grain of salt, because it's it's hard to piece together what they believe based on current tablets. I mean, you know, there's a lot missing, and it's kind of, it's piecemeal, but in Babylonian cosmology, the earth and the heavens were depicted as a spatial whole, 
even one of round shape. So that's what we think they depicted it as. With references, for example, like why do we think that? They reference the circumference of heaven and earth, okay? So no flat theory, no flat earth theory here, folks. Their worldview was not exactly geocentric either. This is kind of pre-geocentric. So um, basically the geocentric idea hasn't come around yet so that the, the earth is in the middle of everything. Yeah, I mean, that didn't really come around to the Greeks. So the Babylonians, they, they didn't have a theory of what's in the center of the universe. They just kind of, they observed the skies more empirically, maybe, possibly. They may have believed both the earth and the cosmos revolved. So later... Greek philosophers would say that, that the earth is not moving and the cosmos is revolving. So the Babylonians and their predecessors, the Sumerians, they also believed in a plurality of heavens and earth. And this idea dates back to Sumerian incantations of the second millennium BC, which basically refers to there being seven heavens and seven earths, possibly linked chronologically to the creation by seven generations of God. So there's seven generations of gods and each one creates a heaven and earth. So... Um, yeah, there's there's some interesting kind of theology there. So, Travis, you mentioned about us, this, this kind of having that connection at the very beginning of what we would consider astrology through uh, through the, the the modern centuries that we that we uh, that we get into. The Babylonian astrologers also laid the foundations to what would eventually become Western astrology. The Enuma Anu Enlil, written during the Neo Assyrian period of the seventh century B.C comprised a list of omens that their relationships with various celestial phenomenon included the motions of the planets. The significant increase of the quality of frequency of Babylonian observations appeared during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar from 747 to 734 BC, who founded the the Neo-Babylonian Empire. The systematic records of ominous phenomena and Babylonian astronomical diaries that began at this time allowed the discovery of a repeating 18-year Saros cycle of lunar ex- eclipses. For example, I think it's important to note that extra- extract observations of the purpose of divination led to better theories of predicting lunar eclipses. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're we're trying to starting getting the idea of of having this divination to kind of predict what could happen in the future. Yeah. So in fact, the Egyptian astronomer Ptolemy later used Nebuchadnezzar's reign to fix the beginning of an era since he felt that the earliest usable observations began at this time. So, speaking of predictions, most of the predictive Babylonian planetary models that have survived were usually strictly empirical, like and arithmetical, and usually did not involve geometry, cosmology, or speculative philosophy, like that came later in the Hellenistic model. So this was just pure observation, in a way. So even though the Babylonian astronomers were concerned with the philosophy dealing with the ideal nature of the early universe, they were mostly just observing. So Greek astronomy, which was dependent on cosmology, Babylonian astronomy was independent from cosmology. Whereas Greek astronomers expressed prejudice in favor of circles or spheres rotating with uniform motion, such a preference didn't really exist for Babylonian astronomers. Like the uniform circular motion was never a requirement for planetary orbits, it was just kind of what they saw. So there's no evidence that celestial bodies moved in uniform circular motion, right? I mean, yeah, then you get things like retrograde and all that weird stuff, or, you know, along celestial spheres. So in Babylonian astronomy, um, yeah, they they didn't have those models that insisted on celestial spheres. So, like, if you look at our Kepler and Brahe episode, 
Yeah, we, we then jump ahead over the Greek model to see how much later thinkers had to overcome this Hellenistic view, which dominated for, yeah, a good 1,500 years or so, or more. So con contributions made by the Chaldean astronomers during this period include the discovery of eclipse cycles and Saros cycles and many accurate astronomical observations. For example, they observed that the sun's motion along the ecliptic was not uniform, even though they didn't know why this was. So today it's known that this is because the, the Earth is moving in an elliptic orbit around the sun, with the Earth, with the Earth moving swifter when it's nearer and, and kind of uh, slower when it's further away. Um, so the Babylonians observed this, but they didn't know why. There are some famous Chaldean astronomers that are, are known to have followed this model, including Naburimanu, who was uh, sixth, sixth, or somewhere between the 6th and 3rd century B.C., Kidinu, which he died around 330 B.C., Berosos, who, around 3rd century B.C. also, and Sudinus, who was somewhere around 240 B.C.E. And they are known to have a significant influence on the Greek astronomer Hipparchus and the Egyptian astronomer Ptolemy, as well as other Hellenistic astronomers. That leads us to Hellocentric uh, astronomy, Travis, and we look at uh, Seleucius of Cilicia, uh, about uh, born about 190 BC, who supported Aristarchus of Samos, Hellocentric's model. Seleucus, however, was unique among them in that he was the only one to have supported the Hellocentric theory of planetary motion proposed by Aristarchus, where the Earth rotated around its own axis with, when in turn revolved around the Sun. According to Plutarch, Seleucus was proved to be the Hellocentric system through reasoning. The, it was not known the arguments that he had used. This possibly could be the tides that we're talking. So according to Bartel Lendert van der Verden, Seleucus may have proved the heliocentric theory by determining the constants of a geometric model for the heliocentric theory and by developing methods to compute planetary positions using this model. He may have used trigonometric methods that were available in his time as he was a contemporary of Hipparchus. None of his original writings or Greek translations have survived, though a fragment of his work has survived only in Arabic translation, which was later referred to by the Persian philosopher Muhammad ibn Zakaria al-Razi. Remember al-Razi? So the Babylonians expressed all periods in synodic months, probably because they used a lunisolar calendar. Various relations with yearly phenomena led to different values for the length of the year. The Babylonian influence on Hellenistic astronomy is, is, is pretty vast. Uh, until the 19th century, through archaeology, most of this was pretty much forgotten and lost to history. And it was thought that the Greeks came up with most of this, this stuff themselves. Since the rediscovery of the Babylonian civilization, it has become apparent that Hellenistic astronomy was strongly influenced by the Chaldeans. The, the best documented borrowing from those of Hippocrus uh, in the 2nd century BCE and Claudius Ptolemy in the 2nd century CE. Another early influence could have been that many scholars kind of think that the Metonic cycle is likely to have been learned by the Greeks from Babylonian scribes. Meton of Athens, a Greek astronomer in the 5th century BCE, he developed a lunisolar calendar based on the fact that 19 solar years is about equal to 235 lunar months, a period relation already known to the Babylonians. And when we say lunisolar, right, so this is what they're saying, is that you have solar years and then you line it up with lunar months or 
you know, something something to this effect. So you have both the sun and the moon make a, making up a calendar. That's that's what we mean. In the fourth century, Eudoxus of Snidus, he wrote a book on the fixed stars. His descriptions of many constellations, especially the 12 signs of the zodiac, are suspiciously similar to Babylonian originals. The following century, Aristarchus of Samos used an eclipse cycle of Babylonian origin called the Saros cycle, basically to determine the year length. However, all these examples of early influence must be inferred and the chain of transmission is not known. So there's clearly similarities, but we don't know exactly, you know, which Babylonian spoke to which Greek or which Greek right. wrote. We, which we don't know exactly the, the, the beginnings of what yeah, transpired how it, there. how it got transferred, but clearly there's, there's influences left and right. So the influence on Hipparchus and Ptolemy, for instance, so it's clear that Hipparchus and then, and then Ptolemy had an essentially complete list of eclipse observations covering many centuries. Most likely this had been compiled from the diary tablets that we mentioned earlier, the Babylonian tablets. These are, again, clay tablets recording all relevant observations that the Chaldeans routinely made. Uh, the examples that we have to date are, are from 652 BC to AD 130. But at some point, the records went back as far as the reign of, of Nabonassar, like we mentioned. And Ptolemy starts his chronology with the first day in the Egyptian calendar of the first year of Nabonassar, which we, we kind of alluded to before. Which is on the 26th of February, 747 BC. Yeah, in case you're wondering. That's, what Ptolemy, that's when Ptolemy uh, starts his, his date. Other traces of Babylonian practice in Hipparchus's work are, for instance, the, we mentioned the 360 degrees by... 60 arc minutes, so um, he was the first Greek to, to use that system. He was the first person to consistently use the sexagesimal number system, like you know, like the 360 degrees, and the use of the unus pecus, or cubit, about two degrees or two and a half degrees, somewhere in there, and use of a short period of 248 days is nine animalistic months. So again, the transmission from Babylonian to Greek isn't entirely known, but there is a pretty safe bet that it probably happened shortly after the conquest by Alexander the Great. According to the late classical philosopher Simplicius, early 6th century, Alexander ordered the translation of the historical astronomical records under supervision of his chronicler Callisthenes of Olynthus, who sent it to his uncle Aristotle. So that's kind of how Greeks got stuff from Babylon. And it's pretty interesting stuff. But to bring us one step closer to alchemy, let's let's talk about astrology as divination. In Babylon, as well as in Assyria, as a different offshoot of Babylonian culture, astrology really takes place in the official cult as one of the two chief means of the disposal of, of the priests, who were called bare, or inspectors, for ascertaining the will and intention of the gods, the other being through the inspection of the liver, of sacrificial animals. So that's a good way to tell the future. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's we, what we, I, do. I, I think we probably also, they're, they're also bringing this from prehistory in a lot of ways of, of a lot of people trying to uh, find the entrails, find uh, information and deviations from entrails from yeah. animals. So this is probably something they didn't invent, but added to their knowledge set at the time. The gods were also believed to present themselves in the celestial images of the planets or stars with whom they were associated with. Evil celestial omens attached to any particular planet were therefore seen as indicators of dissatisfaction or disturbance of the gods that the planets uh, had represented. Such indicators uh, were met with attempts to appease the gods and find manageable ways by which the gods' expression could be realized without significant harm to the king and his nation. So yeah. we're really kind of 
really piecing these things together here, that what we're seeing celestially is going to be some kind of representation of what the God feels and how we can appease that God by maybe making sacrifices or doing something to, to gain his favor again. Mm-hmm. An astronomical report of the king of Ezrahaddon uh, concerning the lunar eclipse of January 673 B.C. shows the, the ritualistic use of substitute kings or substitute events combined with the unquestioning belief of magic and omens with a purely mechanical view that the astronomical events could have some sort of kind of correlation within the natural world. Yeah, so I really like that, actually. So they would they use like a dummy king, basically. So the king's going to have some bad stuff hit him. So instead of so they just substitute him out so that the bad stuff hits the substitute instead. So this is a real fall guy, right? Yeah. So like in the beginning of, of the year, a flood will come and break the dikes. So... Basically, this is what they would say. Like, So when the moon has made the eclipse, the king, my lord, should write to me. As a substitute for the king, I will cut through a dike here in Babylonia in the middle of the night. No one will know about it. So instead of the dike breaking and flooding everything, a substitute king will kind of cut through it. And then, you know, so no one sees. But still, the act is done. So, you know, the, the god is appeased. It's like a symbolic gesture of the bad luck that was about to happen. Really interesting. I, you know, yeah. I... You know, we, there, I, I kind of get confused, Travis, a little bit with the difference between the Greeks and the Romans when they talk, because they change the names of the gods as, as, as time goes on. So maybe it might be a good idea to talk about this for a second. When we talk about planets and gods, of the planets, five were recognized, Jupiter, Venus, Saturn, Mercury, and Mars, to name uh, them in order in which they appear in the order cuneiform literature. In later texts, Mercury and Saturn change places. Just kind of mm-hmm. give you an idea with that. These five planets were identified with the gods of Babylonian pantheon as follows. Jupiter with Marduk. Venus with the goddess Ishtar. Saturn with Ninurta. Mm-hmm. Mercury with Nabu. Or Nibu. Yeah. Can be pronounced that way. And Mars with Nergal. Those, are, those would have been interesting uh, planet names instead of... Well, when you think about it, Travis, this is the same thing that sort of happened with the Greeks and the Romans. I mean, we, we talk about... Uh, these gods changed their names to to fit their good culture. Exactly, exactly. The movements of the sun, moon, and five planets were regarded as representing the activity of the five gods in question. Together with the moon god, Sinad, and sun god, Shamash, in preparing the occurrences on earth. If, therefore, one could correctly read and interpret the activity of these powers, one knew that the gods were aiming to bring about. They knew what was coming. So then the system of interpretation... Um, basically, so how they would read these celestial movements is the Babylonian priests accordingly applied themselves to the task of kind of perfecting a system of interpretation. So the system was kind of extended from the moon, sun, five planets to the more prominent and recognizable fixed stars. So, you know, it had this kind of system to it. So basically, inter- interpretation rested on kind of two factors, on the recollection or on written records of what in the past had taken place with when the phenomena or phenomena in question had been observed, right? So we said like, okay, well, last June you had this constellation and this planet and, you know, it was, the moon was here. And we had so a drought or, yeah. yeah. So next yeah. time, yeah, so exactly. And then the association of ideas. So sometimes it's only merely a play on words, like in connection with the phenomena or phenomena. So, um, for instance, if on a certain occasion the rise of a new moon in a cloudy sky was followed by victory over an enemy or or you know or by abundant rain, you know some some kind of 
phenomena coincided. The sign in question was thus proved to be a, a favorable one, and in and its recurrence would therefore be regarded as a good omen. I know we kind of touched on this before, but it's basically you know just mixing causation with with correlation basically the prognostication would not necessarily be limited to one or the other of those occurrences but might be extended to imply to other circumstances so you're not just saying good rain but you're saying or lots of rain but you're just saying okay well it's also good luck and it's you know your 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 cattle will have well, a lot of what this does say, it covers your tail so so yeah. you really can't be wrong but you think it's either positive or negative or yeah, yeah if so you can stay in the same wheelhouse of being get, positive or negative you, you go can, vague yeah and that way you don't Mm-hmm. You'd be tried as as someone that's a failure in reading these signs. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, so exactly the opposite is also true. That if the appearance of the new moon earlier was expected, was regarded as unfavorable, like there was a defeat in battle or death of cattle, bad crops, etc., then uh, you know, basically in this way, uh, the the mass of traditional interpretations of all kinds of observed phenomena, it was gathered, and then once it was gathered, it became a guide to the priests. So then the, the soothsayers could say, well, you know, they had this huge body of texts that from from observations in the past that they would then be able to build off of and show some kind of precedence, right? Yeah, I really like that. Is this really shows like an evolution of a theory, kind of like a gathering of a theory, rather than specific astronomical events already having meaning. You know, like today, or even even to the times times of the ancient Greeks, it already had some meaning. But these Babylonians were kind of gathering data that they would then give meaning to. So, and then you know, kind of like you said, it was you know these omens were considered much more generally. So you know, you couldn't really be wrong. The big, like I said, this is the very beginning of a theory. You would have to go many many centuries, way past Babylonia, Syria. Um, even past the Greeks, all the way up to medieval and modern astrology, when you get exclusive kind of things like the individual horoscope. So this is way before that time. Um, but you can see but, it building up to that. Yeah, right? but it is the foundation. Yeah. So this is much more general in the terms of the king or the country or uh, you know the cattle in general, crop failure. And only much later, thousands of years later, do you get individual horoscopes and individual kind of soothsaying things. So we didn't tie it into alchemy this time. Like we said, we, we didn't promise to. This um, is a foundation show but to build on. It's, yeah, right? it's really interesting to show where it all came from. So when we talk about astrology, um, we, we break down alchemy pretty well, but alchemy has so much like illustrations and, and the symbolism and uh, just so much coincides with, with astro- astrological events that we felt we needed to break this down a little bit further and and show where astrology came from at its roots. So now I think we can we've kind of covered the evolution of its of its beginnings and now when we bring up astrology in terms of alchemy, I think um, we all have a general understanding. We give a little tip our tip of our cap to the Babylonians. There you go. Yep. Well, once again, thank you very much for listening. Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.